the morning, it was a, I guess it was a Tuesday morning, um, I got up early and I was just going to go for a walk. Uh, I probably should have gone for a run, but I just decided to go for a walk. So I'm out walking. It's about 5.30 in the morning and walking through these neighborhoods right there near uh, Southern Baptist Seminary where Al Moeller is the president. And as I'm walking in the darkness, I hear, I hear somebody coming up beside me. It's just, I'm just by myself in this neighborhood at 5.30. And uh, I kind of glance over for a second, and I'm like, oh, there, there's some old man who's trying to run, right? So there's just some guy running like this. And, um, and then as he kind of gets right, right next to me, I'm like, oh, it's John Piper, 5.30 in the morning, out for a little run. And, uh, and he, I say, hey, and I think he ignored me, but he keeps running. Um, and, uh, and I quick, I pull out my, my phone and, and take a picture of the back of Piper running. And uh, I send it to my brother. Um, my brother's one of my best friends. I send it to my brother, and I said, yeah, out here in Louisville, 5.30, out for a walk. And John Piper runs by. I'm thinking I'm going to impress my brother. My brother responds with this text. Wow, he spent his entire life passing you by theologically and spiritually, and now he's even passing you by physically. <laughs> like, thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. I can't read verse 11 of Psalm 16 without thinking of John Piper. It was now over three decades ago in 19. 19- 86, that John Piper published his book, Desiring God, which is really focused on what he called Christian hedonism. Um, the way he puts it is this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And then it was a decade later in 1996 that by the Spirit of God at Wheaton College, John Piper preached a sermon, phenomenal sermon, life-changing sermon, sermon was called Doing Missions When Dying is Gain. And that's been the point of, of his ministry in life, described in that phrase and even in his ministry title, Desiring God, is this, this reality that, um, that if we see death as gain, um, it changes the way we live. And I would propose to all of us this morning that one of, if not the greatest struggle that we have as men in this room, including the one who's standing up here, is that we really do struggle with seeing death as gain, and therefore we don't live very well. And I would say until we truly understand how to die, we're not going to really understand how to live. And that's where Psalm 16 comes in, because it speaks to this moment where David is wrestling with that exact thing. I don't want to die, and how, and how do I deal with that in the context of, of this holy and sovereign God? Let's read Psalm 16. David says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I shall not pour out or take up their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my, also, my heart also instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For our purposes this morning, I have uh, divided up this psalm just in two sections, really in verses 1 through 7, looking at what it means, what what is David doing here is he's committed in the present, committed in this life, and then verses 8 through 11, that he's confident in the future. And David begins this psalm, like he does a lot of psalms, with a prayer. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't begin with, I'm confident of the Lord. He doesn't begin with, hey, I, I, I feel this, this security. Instead, he begins by saying, preserve me. Again, it's, a, it's like the last two psalms. He's crying out, preserve me. Or, or it could be translated, guard me. Or I like the, better, the phrasing better, keep me. He's saying to God, keep me, like hem me in, like... Hold on to me. Preserve me, he says. And then he goes on and talks about why this should happen. He says, preserve me for... And he mentions four things that he, that he sees in God's character. Things that he's relying upon God for. He said, first of all, preserve me for you are my refuge. Letter A, my refuge. He says, you're going to be my security. I'm I'm choosing to lean on you. I'm counting on you, God, to be my place of safety. So preserve me, but I'm coming to you like last week at Psalm 13. I'm coming to you because I'm seeking my security in you. My refuge is going to be in you. And then he goes on in verses 2 through 4, letter B. You're my Lord. Now let's unpack this a little bit. He starts... In verse 1, saying God, and, and if you look in the Hebrew, it's, it's more the generic name for God. It's Elo, El, Elohim. O God, O El. And then he says, in verse 2, I say to the Lord, and you see that it's all capitals there. Every time you see in your Bible, in your English Bibles, where Lord is all caps, that, that's Yahweh. The covenant name of God. And then it says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. And, that, and you'll notice that that Lord is just a capital L, but lowercase o-r-d. So what he's saying is this. I say to Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who has made a covenant with his people, I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. You are my master. So preserve me. Because in you, I'm going to find my security. Preserve me because I have decided, I have made this choice, I've made this profession that you are going to be my master. You, the covenant God, are going to be the one that calls all the shots in my life. And I say that, he says in verse 2, because apart from you, I don't have anything that's good. If I don't have you, Yahweh, covenant God, then I don't have anything good. There's nothing in this life that has any value to me 
unless I first have you, unless I only have you, unless I supremely have you. And so you, Yahweh, covenant God, are going to be my Lord, my Adonai. You're going to be my master. And he goes on to to talk about in verses 3 and 4, what does it mean when he says, apart from you, I don't have anything that's good. I don't have anything that's of value. And he says in verse 3, as for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I'm going to talk about your people, God. I'm going to talk about fellowship, about who I hang out with. And he says, apart from you, I don't have anything good. And when I look around in fellowship and community in this world, I recognize that it's in the context of your people that I experience that. And then he talks about the others. He says, those who, uh, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. I'm not going to take up their drink offerings um, or take up their name on my lips. I see the people that don't see you as their Lord. I see them running after other gods. And I see their sorrows, literally in the Hebrew, the word is bruises. I see their bruises multiply. They get more and more bruised. But I see the people of God and I want to delight in them. So David says, you're my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And I want to be with your people. I want to delight in them. And I see those who don't delight in you. And I see them run after other gods to try to satisfy them. And I see that they, their sorrows increase. Their bruises increase. And he says, I'm not even going to participate them. When it says, I won't pour out their libations of blood, it's talking about worship. I'm not going to worship those other gods. I'm not going to to find my satisfaction. I'm not going to see them as my master. And we all understand that, don't we? We, we, we are tempted every day. Well, we come to Amen Bible study and have the Lord, we are tempted when we walk out of here to worship like the rest of the world worships at other gods, at lesser gods, to make something else our Lord, to make something else our master. David says, no, I, I, I'm, I'm saying to you, you're my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. And I want to be with your people. I don't want to be caught up in the worship that takes place. I'm not even going to bring up those, I'm not going to take those things on my lips. A question to us this morning, and I think it's an important question for all of us, do we really believe this? Do we believe it so much that we teach our sons and grandsons these things? What do I mean by that? I have, uh, I have two sons. I have, I have three kids, two sons, one daughter. My sons are now in their 20s. And I look back at, 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 at what I was teaching them. And I desired to teach them these things. But oftentimes, by my actions, I was teaching them something else. Even by my applause in their life, I was teaching them something else. I did want them to know Jesus. But I also wanted them to be really successful sports players. And I spent a lot of money, time, and energy pouring into that. I wanted them to 
to go to certain colleges and I wanted them to have certain degrees and I want them to be successful in life and I want them to have great wives and I want them. And oftentimes I found myself teaching them that, yeah, yeah, I want you to have God, but I want you to have all these things too. How do we straighten that out? I think we straighten it out by thinking this. Would it be enough for us personally not to have any of those things if we could have Jesus? Or maybe a little more challenging question is, would it be enough for our sons and grandsons to know Christ and not have any of the other things? To not have successful careers. To not have amazing wives and families. To not be successful at sports or at academics. Would that be enough for us? Is Jesus truly enough? Can we say with David, you are my master. Apart from you, I have nothing good. And all I need is you. And that's where he goes on. He says, you're my Lord. Apart from you, I have nothing good. And in verses 5 and 6, letter C, he says, you're my portion. You're my portion. He uses several words here as he describes uh, that Jesus is enough, that the Lord is enough. He says, you're my portion, you're my cup, you're my lot. You're the, the lines, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. What is David saying here? My portion, my cup. He's already talked about the cup of libations being poured out the, to other gods. He's saying, I can have all different kinds of things to satisfy me. Because he uses food words, portion and cup. But I'm going to choose that the Lord is my portion and my cup. He's going to be my food and my blessing. And he says, you're my lot. And the Hebrew word there is this, you're my circumstances. Whatever comes to me in life, I know that you are Lord, you're Yahweh, you're sovereign. So whatever happens, what the world might call chance or luck, my circumstances, I know it's not chance, it's not luck. It's you, Lord. You are, you are calling the shots. So whatever my lot is, whatever, whatever happens to me, that's my portion from you. You hold it. I know that. And then he says, the lines for me have fallen in beautiful uh, or in pleasant places. The lines. And this whole picture that he's painting right here really goes back to when they took over the promised land and each, was, each uh, tribe was given a certain territory, a certain boundary, a certain inheritance from the Lord. Only he's not talking about little, literal property here because he says the Lord is my portion and he says my, my experience of possessions, whatever is given to me, whatever has happened to me, that has fallen, those lines have been drawn by you, those boundaries have been set by you. And he says they, they come to me in pleasant places. And what's interesting is the word pleasant in verse 6 and the word pleasure in verse 11 are exactly the same Hebrew words. So you could say the lines have fallen for me in pleasurable places or in pleasures. The lines have fallen for me in pleasures. The boundaries that God has given for me are pleasurable. How could David say that? Because he's saying, the Lord is my portion. Not the Lord and everything he gives me. 
The Lord is my portion. You are my possession. You are my lot. It doesn't matter what happens in my circumstances because I have you. It doesn't matter what happens in my possessions because I have you. You're my portion. You're my chosen cup. Imagine a whole table, like all this different food, all these different things to choose. And David says, I choose this. I choose the Lord. He's my chosen portion. And so you see, this, that's where I get this idea of committed. He's, he's saying, I say to the Lord, my profession is, you are my Lord. My chosen portion is the Lord. I'm committed to Him. I'm pursuing Him. And it just reminds us this morning, doesn't it? There's something really good about having nothing. And there's something really dangerous about having everything. Let me say that again. There's something really good about not having earthly possessions. About, there's something really good about being earthly poor. And there's something very dangerous about being earthly rich or wealthy. Jesus, remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, very wealthy, successful young man. And he asked the right questions. What do I need to do to be saved? He asked the right person. He asked that to Jesus. And Jesus, knowing his heart, knowing what his God was, knowing what his chosen portion was, this, this young man, he wanted to know how to be saved, but his chosen portion, his Lord, was his wealth, was his success. And so Jesus, not because Jesus is saying you have to be poor in order to be saved, what he's saying is you can't have your success be your God. And so he says to the, to the man, well, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And it says that the man went away sad because he had great wealth. Does it mean that, again, it's not saying a wealthy person doesn't come into heaven, but then it goes on as the disciples saying, well, what... What, what happened there, and, and Jesus says, is extremely difficult for a wealthy person. Why? Because we're tempted to find that as our possession, as our portion, as our cup. It's also why in, the, in uh, James chapter 1, when uh, James is writing, he said that the, uh, that the poor person should rejoice in their glorious position, and the wealthy person, he's talking about believers, should rejoice in their humility. And then he goes on to say, because everything they have is passing away. So rejoice in that because the Lord is your portion, is what he's saying. David says, you're going to be my wealth. You're going to be my portion. You're going to be my cup. You're my lot, my circumstances. I'm committed to that. And then, fourthly, letter D, he says, you're going to be my counselor. There in verse 7, he says, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night my heart, in the night also my heart instructs me. You're my refuge, you're my master, you're my portion, you're my counselor. 
question I was thinking about as I was uh, driving in this morning was, Todd, who is your counselor? Where do you go for counsel? Have a lot of good counselors. Um, I, <laughs> I also, uh, from time to time, find myself over here at the Christian Psychological Center needing a little help. Lynn, my wife, calls it the spa for the mind. Um, go over there and see Brent Stenberg and say, hey, got a lot of messed up stuff in my life. Can you, can you kind of un, uh, unpack this and sort it out for me? Um, good counsel. But I tell you what, and isn't it true, you men are here. I know I'm, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're here, aren't you? Because this is the greatest counsel you've ever known. In fact, I would say any other good counsel, if it's not derived from this, is no good counsel at all. But I would encourage us to not think that that just Thursday morning, when you sink deeply into the counsel of God, which you do, it's unbelievable, this, this Bible study. Absolutely unbelievable. You sink deeply into God's word and you want it. You want it. I mean, don't, I've told other guys who are going to be guest speakers here and young, other pastors, I'm like, don't, don't be light. You, these guys want it. I say, you bring it to them. Bring it deep. But this can't be our only place, men. This can't, we can't just receive the counsel of God on Thursday mornings. No, we've got to every day, every day we need to spend time with, with our phone, cell phone somewhere way over there and our Bibles and our prayer journals and our notes and, and we just need to sit and experience what it is to say the Lord is my counselor and not seek other counsels just sit there every day, blocking that time. I've even said this. I think I shared this a few weeks ago. Uh, now, when, when uh, especially younger people, when they come to my office, well, it happened with an older guy uh, today, guy a little, yesterday, over 60, and he said, hey, I'm really struggling in my marriage, Todd. I really need help. I said, great. Listen, tell me, what, is, what are your patterns? What are your daily patterns of word and prayer? What are your weekly patterns of worship? He said, well, that's a weird question. I said, I know. I said, but here's the deal. I don't know how to help you until I, I, can, I can eliminate the most obvious thing. The most obvious thing, the most obvious reason you might be having trouble in your marriage, the most obvious reason you might be struggling with anxiety and depression, the most obvious reason is that you're not seeking the counsel of God every day. That would be the most obvious thing. Because I guarantee you, if you're going weeks and weeks without sitting for yourself in God's word every day, if you're going weak, if you're, if you're missing worship, corporate worship, more than once a month, guaranteed you're going to struggle with anxiety and depression. Guaranteed you're going to struggle in your marriage. Guaranteed you're going to struggle in your work. So I said, let's eliminate the obvious. <laughs> let's get back on track with this. And then a month from now, Let's see how things are going. And then we might be able, if there's something else, if there's something, you know, something in your past, something, we need to work on that, great. But let's at least eliminate the obvious. Get before the counsel of God every day. And let's make sure, men, that, that we take what we're committed to here on Thursday and actually live that out through the week. So, what does that mean? That we, as the men here of Amen Bible Study, would be would be uh, the leaders in our homes 
of those who daily set aside time in our calendar, a specific time during the day to sit down with God's word and in prayer. Let's be those men. Otherwise, otherwise we're, we're not really living out what we're trying to do here at Amen. And let's be the greatest attenders of our, whatever your church is, let us be the ones who are always there. Let us be the ones who come back early from whatever we were doing on the weekend to be in our place of worship. And let us be the ones who, when we're on vacation, find a place to worship because we want to demonstrate the rest of our week what we demonstrate here on these mornings. And let me just say, this is awesome, but this does not take the place of weekly worship. It does not. There's something different that the Lord has for us in corporate worship in our churches that he does not have for us here. But let this be the springboard. Let the counsel of God in us here, let that spring forward into seeking the counsel of God every day for ourselves and to, to sit under the preaching. And, to, and what does it say there? It says, I will bless the Lord. Uh, the NIV says, I will praise the Lord because he's my counselor. I will worship him. I will bring glory to him in worship. That's what it means when David says he's, he's my counselor. Well, then in verses 7 through 11, David talks about this confidence that he has in his future. He says there in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. I'm confident, first of all, letter A, because he's my safety. He's my safety. I have set, that's committed. I'm committed. I've set the Lord. That's what he's been talking about in verses uh, 7, excuse me, 1 through 7. And then he says, in speaking of his confidence, I will not be shaken. I have set, this is what's happening now in the present, and because of that, in the future, I'm not going to be shaken. I'm not going to be rattled. Because he is my safety. And so no matter what happens, David's saying, no matter what happens, whatever my lot is, no matter what happens, even death, because that's what he begins to talk about there in verse 9 and 10. I'm confident in the future because the Lord is my safety and the Lord is my resurrection. Now some of you know your Bible so well that you're wondering if I was ever going to talk about Acts chapter 2 when on the day of Pentecost Peter gets up, preaches this sermon and quotes from Psalm 16 and quotes these verses here, verses uh, 9 and 10, and attributes them to Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, Peter says, David was not speaking about himself, but speaking about Christ. And some of you are saying, but Todd, you're, you're saying this is Peter's claim for himself. Uh, excuse me, uh, you're saying that this is David's claim for himself, but Peter said it was David's prophecy about Jesus, so which one is it? Is, it? is it David's claim for himself, I'm confident, because I, these things are going to happen to me? Or is it prophecy, is David carried by the Holy Spirit speaking about Jesus, as, as Peter said? What is it? Here's what I think it is. I actually think, I'm going I'm to side with John Calvin and John Piper, two great Johns. 
I'm going to side with them and say, I, I think there is something in the present with David where David is claiming this, and yet at the same time, is, this verse carries on in a, in a way that is prophetic to the resurrection of Christ. Now, I need to unpack that a little bit. And if you have NIV Bibles, I'm saying I wouldn't agree with the way the NIV translated. The ESV, Holy Ones there, is not capital Holy One. My Holy One will not see decay. Is not capitalized. The NIV has decided to... to go with Boyce and others saying, no, this is, just a, this is just a messianic psalm about Jesus. And so they've capitalized holy ones. I'm going to side with Calvin and Piper and say, no, there's something here about David. Now let me explain this and unpack this. And to do that, we're going to have to look at a few different places in our Bible. First of all, turn in your Bibles back to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to show you what was going on in the mind of David as he's saying, preserve me, O God, Guard me. I'm committed to you. Now I have confidence that, that my flesh will dwell secure, that I will not be abandoned to Sheol, to destruction. I will not see corruption. So now, how does he say that? But he did. Peter says, David did see corruption. This has to be about Jesus. What's going on here? First of all, 2 Samuel 7, Nathan is prophesying. So Nathan's a prophet of God. He's speaking God's word. And he says this to David. Okay, look at verse 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse, uh, verse 12. He says this to David, prophesying from God. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He says to David... Nathan, the prophet, God's word says, you're going to go to the grave and your body's going to see corruption. You're going to go to the grave and your body is going to see corruption. But I'm going to establish a king after you. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Nathan goes on to talk about this king who's going to be in the line of David, who will not see corruption, who will have a kingdom that goes on forever, who clearly, David understands two things in this prophecy of Nathan. First thing he understands is, I'm going to die and be put in a grave just like my fathers were. But there's going to be a king after me on this throne whose kingdom will be forever. So that means he's never going to die. David understands those two things. But David also knows because the Spirit of God is working even in these men and women in the Old Testament speaking to them about the Messiah and the fact that there would be eternal life. Job, probably the oldest book in our Old Testament. In Job chapter 19, you all remember this. Job says, in the midst of his suffering and pain, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will be standing at the last day. And though, he says, though my skin rots away, yet I will see him, my Redeemer, in the flesh, in my flesh. So Job prophesied about that. Other Psalms, Psalm 49, it talks about you're going to rescue my soul from Sheol. Psalm 73 says you're going to... Uh, Care for me now and afterwards you're going to take me into glory. 
So clearly, the Old Testament prophets understood there was something, there was something about a Messiah who would be our Savior, who would somehow rescue us from death, even as we're experiencing death. So now turn to Acts chapter 2. And let's look at what, what Peter says as he quotes Psalm 16. Verse 25 of, of Acts chapter 2. Peter says this, For David says concerning Christ, concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full in gladness with your presence. Then this is what Peter says. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and we are witnesses of that. So David says, I mean, excuse me, Peter says, listen, David knew about this and prophesied about it. David knew he was going to die. But I'm going to tell you, David knew he was going to die because Nathan told him. But he also knew there was a Messiah. And somehow, somehow this Messiah, this eternal king, and the fact that David even though he would be buried, would live forever, somehow those things go together. And David wasn't exactly sure. He just knew, somehow I'm going to experience God's pleasures forever. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to just disintegrate. This isn't just going to all end. But I know I'm going to be buried. Nathan told me. But there's a Messiah who will not, somehow this Messiah who's going to conquer death and and my ability to both die and yet live, somehow they go together. Now, what was going on there? Peter explains this. One last place for us to look. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter explains this in the prophets. He explains what's going on in David's mind and in others' minds as he walks through this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Listen to what he says. Listen to what Peter says. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which Angels long to look. Peter says, these Old Testament prophets, David, they, they were receiving these prophecies. They knew, David knew, there's a Messiah who's going to conquer death. And I'm not going to die, but I'm going to be in a grave. David couldn't put those together. Like other prophets, he searched and inquired. How, I know these things are true. I don't know exactly how, but I know they are true. So David didn't know exactly, but he was going to believe. Brothers, 
here's the good news. This morning, you and I know. Because <laughs> the cross has happened. You and I know more than David that our flesh will dwell secure. We know how though our bodies will be put in the grave, maybe even today, that we will not be abandoned to, to death. That, that, that our bodies, as it talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, are, we will be resurrected with Christ because Christ has been resurrected. We understand now that Jesus was the first fruits of our resurrection. That's what David was prophesying about. That's why those verses 9 and 10 are not just about Jesus and they're not just about David. They're about Jesus and about David and how what happened with Christ conquering death has now given David this security. I know my flesh dwells secure. But you and I know even more <laughs> that our flesh dwells secure. And so we can, even with more confidence, there in that last verse, verse 11, say, Christ is my fullness. Christ is my fullness. He's my portion now but he's the only thing that will ever satisfy me. Three great words that begin with P there in verse 11. Path, presence, pleasures. The path of Christ is really wherever he's present. It's not a, it's not a certain path. The God's will is not some kind of you know, Google trick you've got to figure out. To get to where you're going on, oh, you're on the wrong place. And God's like, ah, you're not. No, the, 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 the will of God is the presence of God. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you are on the earth, what your circumstances are. If you are in the presence of God, that's all that matters. The path, presence, and in that are pleasures. That's why Jesus said, I have come, John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, be satisfied. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11 says, uh, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. None of the things on this earth could ever satisfy us because we were created from the start with, with this need. We are, we're eternal beings. And so only things that of eternity could ever satisfy us. Nothing temporal on this earth could ever possibly satisfy us. Only what is offered in Christ, only his presence, only in that place will we find those eternal pleasures that, that we were wired for in creation. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I'm your food. I'm your portion. I'm what you need to choose to fill yourself. That's why in Philippians chapter 3, Paul lists all the reasons why in this earth he was the man. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the greatest Pharisee. I rose to levels of success. And then he says, and I count all of that as a pile of rubbish. And the actual word there in the Greek is, is, uh, is more like a pile of manure. I count all of those earthly successes as a pile of manure compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing 
Jesus. I want to know Christ. And I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And that's also why earlier in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then he goes on and goes, I don't know which one to choose. Brothers, the amazing news for us today is this. That to die is gain. That Jesus is enough. That in Christ, your flesh dwells secure. And there is for you an inheritance of God's pleasures forevermore. He is your food. He is your bread. He's come to give you life to the full. He will satisfy you. You literally, we literally need nothing else when we walk out of this room. I've printed on your sheet the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. Four different confessions of faith arose during the time of the Reformation, one of them being Heidelberg Confession and Catechism. We sometimes use it here in our church in worship. This first question uh, is a great first question. And it sums up the truth that David knew. As we end this morning before I pray, I'd like all of us to stand. And I'm not asking you to quote to say this with me unless you believe it. But if you believe it, Let's say this together. Brothers, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Brothers, you said that if you believe it. And let's go out this morning and let's live this. Let's live it. Let me pray for us. Father, you know how your Holy Spirit strengthens me and, and all the men in here by the, by the fellowship of the saints here, the excellent ones in whom is all our delight. And, and you know, you know our weaknesses. You know that, that every morning we cry out, Lord, preserve me. Lord, guard me. Lord, keep me. And Father, we would say to you this morning, we want to lean on you as our refuge, as our master, as our portion, as our counselor. 
And Lord, we want to rest in the confidence that you are our safety, that you are our resurrection, and that you are our fullness. Oh, Father, by the power of your spirit, work that in us, that we might truly believe and live in a way that says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Father, we make this prayer in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.